Today's podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Chapter American Academy of Pediatrics. The Ohio AAP promotes the health, safety, and well-being of children and adolescents so they may reach their full potential. We accomplish this by addressing the needs of children, their families, and their communities, and by supporting chapter members through advocacy, education, research, service, and improving the systems through which they deliver pediatric care. The Ohio Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Kiwanis Club of Columbus proudly presents a special series centering on health disparities and engaging minoritized communities entitled Infant Mortality After COVID-19, Saving Lives Through Family Health Podcast. My name is Jordi Wells, and I use my real-life experiences as a pediatric emergency medicine doctor to dig deep into complex issues affecting the lives of children in Ohio. Thanks for joining us today. You'll be listening to a panel discussion featuring Dr. Arthur James, former associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology and pediatrics at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Nationwide Children's Hospital, co-chair of the Ohio Collaborative to Prevent Infant Mortality and senior policy advisor to the Ohio Department of Health. Dr. Kiara Barnett, a former postdoctoral fellow at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity and current research scientist at the Center for Child Health Equity and Outcomes Research at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And finally, Dr. Valencia Walker, Associate Chief Diversity and Health Equity Officer for Nationwide Children's Hospital, Vice Chair for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and the Associate Division Chief for Health Equity and Inclusion for the Division of Neonatology. This conversation is a continuation of our panel discussion on infant mortality and health disparities in minoritized communities. To hear from the beginning, go back to our episode library and click on episode number one. This podcast and this really rich discussion is a great step in terms of what do we do next and and how do we make change? And so I want to pose... um, different ideas for next steps for awareness, understanding, and action for different groups to each one of you. And Dr. Walker, I'll start with you and ask, how can healthcare workers, hospitals, and academic institutions make a difference? Well, I think this is a great place for me to do a shameless plug for Nationwide Children's Hospital. I'm really excited that we have our Stand Against Racism Stand for Health Equity Initiative. And this is something that We are making efforts to be an anti-racist organization at every level, from the CEO all the way down to the person that gives you directions when you first walk into the building about where you need to go. I think we have to recognize that even though we have this incredibly noble and humbling and rewarding profession, that in and of itself doesn't make us immune to bias, mistreatment, and discrimination. And so, yes, we start with the implicit bias training, but then we also move beyond that to really institutionalize ways to decrease barriers to care at the bedside. Um, Similar to our Healthy Families, Healthy Neighborhoods program, we have to be partners with our families. They're going to tell us what makes it hard to travel if they're coming from a very rural county. If they're coming from a neighborhood that doesn't have good transportation, it's only two blocks or three blocks away. And we have to work on those things as well. And as I mentioned with the research, we have to deal with the mistrust and bring people in and recognize their lived experience and the expertise and the experts that they are. 
Um, but they're doing more to partner with community organizations. Like I'm really concerned about premature babies and babies that have complications at birth. And so there are some great community organizations located across the state that um, do wonderful work to support families and to working with those community organizations because we can't do it all in the hospital, I think is another important step for hospitals to recognize. Thank you so much for that perspective. To Dr. Barnett, I'm gonna pose to you, what can governments and communities do to make a difference? Yeah, and I wanna echo some things that Dr. Walker said. I think when we think about what can governments do, they also have to get over that hump of that mistrust. And we've seen that in this pandemic, where when you have even, you know, government in terms of like the mayor, but even public health departments coming into communities and trying to either have testing clinics on site in communities or even vaccination clinics on site in communities, community members step back and say, where, where did you come from? Right? Like we've had disparities for generations as Dr. Uh, James has already pointed out, and we haven't seen that presence. And so when we wanna tackle any issue, be it COVID-19 or, or infant mortality from the government kind of perspective, they also have to get over that hurdle of mistrust. And I think we get to that one by talking to community members, allowing them to tell us what, what they need um, and what they think is gonna be most helpful. Because while we might wanna tackle you know, X, they might really be looking at Z and saying, this is truly our problem within, in this community. And, and that Z might still get us back to improving infant mortality, but we don't know that unless we talk to people and hear their voices um, and get information from them. But we also have to do some um, investment within communities. So again, we have this history of disinvestment, especially in our minority um, communities. So now we have to really have some intentional investment going into communities, but investment that does not come with gentrification, meaning we don't invest in communities to have a higher income, predominantly white population move into those communities. So how do we build up communities and, and maintain the residential population that existed before that investment came through? So I think that's one big part of what the government can do talk to the people, invest in what they want. And from a community perspective, I think we have to learn how to, how do we empower our disadvantaged and minority communities to have the same energy that our upper class white uh, communities have, right? So if you're familiar with Franklin County and Upper Arlington, if they don't want a certain business in their community, they know how to rally together um, and, and have their voices heard. And it's not because their voices matter more than voices on the South side, but it's because they have been trained and conditioned to believe that their voices matter in ways that some of our minoritized communities have not. And so how do we empower them to have that same sort of voice, to bring that same sort of energy collectively together to, to say, hey, this is what our community needs and this is what we need to do in order to get it. And how do we then bring and bridge the community and these government entities together to bring that investment in uh, to get the things that we need most in our communities? So important and, and such good points about that bi-directional conversation and making sure that the community is involved and also empowered. Um, finally, to Dr. James, can we talk about what parents and families can do to make a difference? Yes, um, but I want to I want to piggyback on some of the things that have already been said, both by um, by Dr. Barnett and by Dr. Walker. One, I think it's I think it's very important um, that all of the things that were brought up 
um, <clears throat> that that individuals can do, that hospitals can do, um, is extremely important. But if we go back to one of the comments that Dr. Barnett shared earlier when she was talking about the social determinants of health, she mentioned that 20% of health outcomes are influenced most by what happens in a clinical setting, that 80% occurs in the area of social determinants of health. What occurs in the area of social determinants of health is determined by policies, practices, and systems that are put in place. So that while Dr. Walker talked about the things that were important for um, individuals and communities to do, and where she put that within the context of what a hospital like Nationwide Children's is doing, most of that falls within the 20% in terms of the clinical stuff that takes place. And if we only address the 20%, we're never gonna get rid of the inequity that occurs in birth outcomes. We have to pay much, much, much more attention to the social determinant piece, the 80% part of this. Some have recently, some of the literature recently suggested that in order to achieve equity, we have to pay attention to at least three different components of the work that we do. First is to um, value all individuals and populations equally. The second is recognizing and rectifying historical injustices. And the third is providing resources uh, according to need. Now, I mentioned that within the context of answering your question because <clears throat> I think it's, an unfair challenge to put on the back of the individual to address those three different things that were mentioned. I also wanna go back a bit to one of the other comments that Dr. Walker made, where she talked about <clears throat> after the delivery, we deliver the placenta. Um, um, I, I used to, <clears throat> make this analogy from on, on a non-clinical basis, the placenta is often referred to as the afterbirth. And as important as the placenta is for the viability of pregnancy, <clears throat> once we deliver a baby, we, for the most part, throw away the placenta. We throw away the afterbirth. And I think that that's been... <clears throat> A lot of our approach to pregnancy, especially where women from minoritized and lower income communities are concerned, that during the pregnancy, if they don't have insurance, we provide them with Medicaid. If nutrition is an issue, we provide WIC. Transportation is a problem, we may give them vouchers. But then once the pregnancy ends, we often take away all of that assistance and help. We literally throw that baby's life and the mother's life away after birth, like we do the placenta um, <clears throat> after we deliver a baby. So I think that that after birth analogy uh, is very, very important. Now, <clears throat> you didn't ask this question, but I'm gonna address it just because it comes up a lot in a lot of the talks that I give 
where people are bothered that at this point in time, we are bringing up the significant issues in terms of racial disparities in birth outcomes. And for some, um, they've compared it to, for example, the pushback that is being received by, for example, um, the, 20, the 1619 Project, or uh, for some on the political right, a conversation about a distorted conversation about uh, critical race theory. I think that what you've heard from us is based on historical fact that it's not um, changing uh, an attempt to change or distort our history, but to bring a different perspective. I'd like to quote, if you don't mind, um, a famous historian who talked about um, the significance of history in her book, Creating Black Americans. She said, contrary to what many people assume, history exists in two time frames, the past and the present. It is tempting to conclude that what happened in the past is over and done with, entirely unchanging despite the passage of time. Historical narrative um, constructs a coherent story that <clears throat> makes sense of us now, however, historical narrative endows certain people and, and certain events with historical importance and denies historical importance to other people and events. Historical narrative changes over time. What we want to know about the past at one point in time offer, differs from what we wanted to know at an earlier point, or for that matter, what we will want to know in the future. We can see such changes clearly concerning American history. Before the civil rights movement of the 1960s, before black people began to be seen as genuinely American people, American history was primarily the story of white people. In the past, relatively few readers of history wanted to know what African-Americans were doing and thinking. Now though, many people wanna know. Similarly, before the women's movement of the 1970s, before women began to be seen as equal to men, American history was mainly the story of men. Relatively few readers wanted to know what women were doing and thinking in the past. Now many want to know. Changes such as these are still underway and the writing of history continues to evolve. As new issues emerge, new questions surface and the past yields <clears throat> new answers. I share that within the context of those three things that I mentioned in terms of what it's gonna to take to achieve equity. Valuing all individuals and populations the same, then recognizing and rectifying historical injustices and providing resources according to need. It is within the context of providing resources according to need that I also want to address this notion that we have had some challenges with in terms of um, in terms of this, this whole notion of um, providing more assistance to uh, communities of color than we do to other communities. If we are ever going to achieve equity and the opportunity to survive the first year of life, we have to get to a point that we are willing to make the investments in order to improve the black infant mortality rate at a faster pace that we improve the white infant mortality rate. And we have to do that without compromising our efforts to improve the white infant mortality rate, which means that we have got to double down, triple down in terms of disaffected communities and the outcomes 
uh, that have been experienced in this country. Now, some people have referred to this <clears throat> notion as being unfair and unjust, that it would be totally wrong for us to ever work at improving the opportunity to survive the first year of life for one group more than we do for another group, which is why I mentioned the disparity ratios and how they have increased over time over the last 49 years in the state of Ohio, because the white infant mortality rate has improved at a faster pace than the black infant mortality rate. And we have behaved as if that was normal. We've never complained. And of course, it's not normal. It occurs as a consequence of policies, practices, and systems that we've put in place that have placed certain populations at increased risk relative to other populations. Now, there's some people who will suggest that this notion of working to improve outcomes for the Black community at a faster pace than we improve outcomes in the white community, again, is unjust, unfair, and some have even <clears throat> suggested that it belongs within the conversation of reparations. I'm, I'm not against putting it in that category, we have to, though, get to a point that we realize that the only way we're going to achieve equity is to make more investments in the improvement in the Black community than we have in other communities. So now to get to your point, your question about then what can individuals do? Let's start the conversation with a clear-cut understanding that this transcends the power of the individual, that 80% of what we're talking about occurs as a consequence of policies, practices, and systems. And so governments at a local, regional, federal level have to pay attention um, uh, to, this, to this issue. Having said that, then all of the things that Dr. Walker mentioned in terms of what an individual needs to do get to be important. So Getting insurance if you don't have insurance, that means in our state applying for Medicaid to provide um, payment for your prenatal care. Enrolling in prenatal care as soon as possible, following all the directions of your, of your clinical providers. Uh, even though we know that within our systems, there is some bias within the systems that Dr. Walker alluded to earlier, you still need to go in and get that care. Keep, stay on time in terms of um, your prenatal visits. Take all your vitamins and other medications. Um, comply as closely as you can with all of the re clinical requirements. But no, go into your pregnancy understanding that, you know, based on race in this country, <clears throat> you are at increased risk, not because there's anything more wrong with you than any other individuals, but because of the bias, both historical and contemporary, that exist in our system, um, and and we have to fight a we have to fight against that. The fight is both on an individual level, but it's more importantly, more significantly, on a systemic level, taking into account all of those things that Dr. Barnett mentioned to us earlier that most contribute to the disparities that we see in outcomes. Thank you, Dr. James. I can't think of a stronger and better message to help close out our great discussion today. And I want to also offer an opportunity for um, our other esteemed panelists to give some closing remarks. Dr. Walker? Absolutely. I'm always so grateful when I can participate in a discussion with Dr. James, because I think we've been trying to 
make this point over and over again. And the combination of the data and the facts, I think, speak for itself. As physicians, though, you may say, okay, but I can't do all of that. I'm just a person. And so I, I want to leave with a couple of quotes for the healthcare professionals that are listening to this podcast. So one, particularly for physicians, the good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. And that is a quote from Sir William Osler. Another quote is, medicine is a social science and politics is nothing else but medicine on a large scale. And the quote goes on to say, physicians are the natural attorneys, which is another word for advocate of the poor and social problems fall to a large extent within their jurisdiction. And this is another one of our historical uh, legendary luminary figures in medicine, Rudolf Virchow. And so as physicians, as healthcare professionals, we must understand that this absolutely is our space and it is our role to do this work and to be a part, not just of the 20% change, but of that 80% change. Great. And I'll give you one opportunity, Dr. Barnett, any closing words um, for our discussion today? Yeah, thank you. It's very hard to follow Dr. Walker, Dr. James. <laughs> so I echo everything they said. Um, and just to, uh, I will leave you with a reminder that, you know, as we have this conversation about racism and its place in here, recognizing that racism exists without the presence of a racist. So when you think about racism not existing in your institution, recognize that it doesn't take someone who is blatantly racist for it to exist because it's embedded in our policies that's again rooted in that in that history of our of our countries and our institutions and so um, being able to have that perspective I think is really helpful of understanding how people are disadvantaged um, in ways and it doesn't it doesn't mean anything about you as a person, um, you know, working within that within that an institution that might be rooted in systemic racism, um, because all of our institutions are right. So it doesn't it doesn't look it doesn't reflect you as a person. Um, but one of the things that we want to think about is like how do we, as Dr. Walker mentioned earlier, how do we be anti-racism in the work that we do? Great. Thank you so much for that reminder and that clarification. I think it's really important in the context of our great discussion today. Um, as we take a look back on the historical perspective, we see how these uh, more current um, cases like COVID-19 has maybe impacted um, and further um, challenged um, our communities and also the different ways that we need uh, to make a change and whether that's um, in uh, with our governments, our healthcare systems, our communities, and at the individual level, level it's going to take all of us in order to um, really bridge and reduce that racial disparity gap, especially here in Ohio. Um, and we need to put forth full efforts to do so. I want to thank our panelists today for your expertise and for joining us again in this robust discussion. I know I certainly learned a lot and I think so have our listeners. This podcast was brought to you by the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Kiwanis Club of Columbus. For more information, please visit our website at www.ohioaap.org. Thank you.